Well, good morning. It's very good to be back with you today. Um, the B family is all very negative <laughs> in the best sense of the COVID world. Uh, and so we are back with you today, and that is great. I'm so thankful for Stuart, uh, for Stuart Pattison. Um, I'm thankful for Drew Barnes, who was ready this morning just in case. Um, we're blessed with some people who can preach the word and uh, do that on short notice. So I'm really thankful for them. And last week it was, it was really wonderful to sit at home together as a family and listen to Stuart. Uh, we thought about the last time that we had all uh, been home from church together when we weren't out of town. And it's been 11 years and we weren't live streaming back then, so we couldn't even watch the service. So it was a, a very unique experience for our family to be sitting together without doing something for the service and just watching and enjoying uh, the service. So that was great. I appreciated Stuart's message, and it generated lots of conversation in our household last week. It was uh, really, really good. Uh, and it fit really well. Like last week, I just gave Stuart carte blanche. I had called him on a Friday after I got the text from Robbie saying, I can't taste and smell, and said, uh, Stuart, you've told me that if I ever needed you to preach on like last minute, like if I wake up Saturday and I'm sick, I could call you. And he said, yep, I have. I said, I'm calling you, man. Can you preach on Sunday? And he went, well, we were planning on being at the first service anyway, so sure. So will you preach at both services, Stuart? <laughs> yes, yes, he would. So uh, uh, it was great. He said, what, what do you want me to preach on? I said, Stuart, it's Friday. <laughs> Man, preach on what you want to preach on. And if you have one in the file, he goes, I don't do that, which he told you too. And I so appreciate that, that like he comes to the word fresh. He prayerfully considered what we needed to hear, and amazingly, or maybe not so much, uh, God worked through the Spirit and His Word, leading Stuart to a passage to make observations for us that fit perfectly into where we are. I'm just so amazed at how often God orchestrates all of the pieces, even in the last minutes, to come together in such an incredible way. And so last week we heard the story of Zacchaeus, and Stuart made some observations that in talking with many of you, we hadn't thought of before. And I go, that's so amazing. And what it spoke to is the grace of God. Not only in how God graciously orchestrates all things, but in how we see Jesus interact with Zacchaeus. There's grace. And it was so cool to just hear his message thinking about where we are as a church, thinking about going through our seven shared member values. And, and we were in affirmation last month, and this month, oh, we're in grace. And how we all need grace. So let's just pray that God in his grace would meet us here today. I know we've prayed for the word already, but... Let me add my voice to that prayer as we open the word today. Father God, thank you for your grace. It is amazing. And Father, I pray that you would continue to open our minds to your disposition to us. Father, you are gracious. 
toward us. That's how you consistently come to us. Father, I pray that we would see that more clearly in your word today. I pray that we would take what we heard last week, that we would just continue to carry it forward into this week. And Father, I pray for your grace. As I speak, as these people listen, Father, as we all long to hear from you by your grace, would you speak to us today through your word, by your spirit, in Christ's name, amen. Well, this month we are looking at that value of grace, and that story of Zacchaeus is such a wonderful picture of God's grace. God's grace is this perspective of the multidimensional, the multifaceted character of God. To separate God's grace from his mercy, his love, his kindness, his forgiveness, his compassion, and we could go on and on, is impossible. It is by this combined identity that God introduces himself to Moses in Exodus 34. Moses has gone up on the mountain. God's called him up to the mountain to say, hey, I I, I want to give you my law. I want to give you the instructions that will carry you as a people into prosperity. I want to give you my instructions that will set you as my people apart from all of the nations around you. So come up on the mountain and God descends. And that text says, the Lord descended in the clouds and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Now, Moses had met with God before, but never like this. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquities and transgressions and sins. But who will by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. Those couple of verses, Exodus 34, verses 5 and 6, is known in the Jewish tradition as the 13-fold mercies of God. And if you just look at that text, there's 13 things. The Lord, he begins with this name, Adonai. God is merciful. And he's merciful before a person sins. God's merciful even before we sin. He knows all things. He sees all things. He is aware of future evil. And yet even that evil lies dormant with him. It lies powerless with him. He's merciful even before someone sins. That that name is repeated. The Lord, Adonai, God is merciful even after someone sins and goes astray. Oh, that we would know him as merciful before we sin and that that would draw our hearts to him and that we would know him as merciful after we sin and that that would draw our hearts to him. The Lord, the Lord, a God, El, the name that denotes power and rule over nature, humankind, indicating that God's mercy, his grace, his forgiveness extends To every degree imaginable. The Lord, the Lord, a God 
who is merciful and gracious or compassionate. God is filled with loving sympathy for human frailty and does not put people to shame. God never shames us for what we've done. Gracious, God shows mercy even to those who do not deserve it. None of us deserves what God shows us. None of us deserves that the heart of God is turned toward us continually. Slow to anger. If God was not slow to anger, none of us would be here today. His anger would consume us in our sin. And yet God is slow to anger. He's patient. He's long-suffering. Abundant in kindness. God is kind toward those who lack merit. He's truth. God God never swerves from the truth. He is truth. He's the preserver of kindness for thousands of generations. He's the forgiver of iniquity, the forgiver of willful sin, the forgiver of error. He is the one who cleanses. All of that is grace. Grace is our perspective, it's our, our, our distilled perspective of this multidimensional, multifaceted character of God. It is who He is. Now often we tend to simplify this idea of grace into an expression that grace is an undeserved kindness. And that is so true, and it's good and helpful to hang on to that simple definition that that God is kind to you even when you don't deserve it. That's grace. And yet it's so helpful to hang on to this deeper sense of all that God is. Grace is not just something God does or that God shows. Grace is who God is. It's important to see this just as we see Jesus. Jesus took on flesh to dwell among us for many reasons. One of those reasons is to reveal the Father to us and and then to reconnect us to the Father. Jesus took on flesh so that we could have relationship with him, so that we could experience the heart of God, the grace of God in a very tangible way really enjoy uh, a story that I found in a book entitled Finding Freedom Through the Intoxicating Joy of Irresistible Grace by Daniel Montgomery and Timothy Paul Jones. Timothy tells of a story of their adopted daughter and so they had been through this process of adopting this little girl who had been adopted previously but that family never really brought her into their family. And so when they would go on vacation to Disney World, they would actually leave this adopted girl with family friends while they took their biological children to Disney World. And so every time, and this happened multiple times, this girl was put aside, this adopted girl was put aside and was not allowed to go to Disney World. And she began to believe that it was because of things that she had done. And so um, they dissolved that adoption. It didn't work out. And Timothy uh, and his family adopted this girl. And when he found out this history, he planned a trip to Disney World. 
He goes, we're going to Disney. And when they had told her that, when they had said, hey, here's our plan. We're taking a family trip to go to Disney. She started to behave incredibly poorly. She started to steal food when she could have just asked for a snack. She started to lie when telling the truth would have been easier. She started doing all kinds of things that they're like, where is this coming from? And so one night, he sat her down after she had again broken some rules, and he, he sat with her lovingly, her on his lap, and just said, what's, what's going on? And she said, well, I know that the family's going to Disney, and so um, I know that that means I will be left home, and I just thought I would act as bad as I feel like I'm being treated. And there was this light bulb in Timothy's mind. He said, um, is this going to be a family vacation? And she said, well, yes. And he said, are you part of our family now because we've adopted you? And she said, well, yes. And he said, well, then you're going to Disney World. And he thought that would take care of it. But it only increased, her, her disobedience only increased. And so all the way down to Florida, they, they drove down and stayed in various hotels. She was acting out horribly. The first day they get to Disney and she's all over the place. They hardly make it through the day. But they get back home that night and she's exhausted. She's laying in bed and she opens her eyes. And he says, did you have a good day today? And she said, yeah. Daddy, I finally got to go to Disney World. But it wasn't because I was good. It's because I'm yours. Isn't that grace? Isn't that a beautiful picture of God's grace? We don't receive God's grace. We don't experience God's grace because we're good. We experience God's grace because it is who he is and his heart is toward us. And in Christ, we've been made his. It's interesting to uh, just see Jesus in action and so we, we got this beautiful picture of Jesus in action last week with Zacchaeus. I know that for many of you, it, it touched a chord. In, in my family, it touched a chord. That, that idea of Jesus never looking down on anyone. That idea of Jesus looking up to Zacchaeus and calling his name. That idea of Jesus going to abide in his house. That's all grace. And yet it shows us something about Jesus. The cumulative testimony of the Gospels is that when Jesus Christ sees fallenness, when he sees sin, when he sees suffering in our world, and he saw that all around him, we have so many examples of Jesus doing this. His deepest impulse, his most natural instinct is to run toward that, not to run away. Jesus' most natural instinct, his drive, his core motivation is grace. And he runs to where grace is needed. In his book, Gentle and Lowly, 
author Dane Ortland says, one way to see this is against the backdrop of the Old Testament category of clean and unclean. In biblical terms, these categories generally refer not to physical hygiene, but to moral purity. The two cannot be completely disentangled, but moral or ethical cleanness is the primary meaning. That's evident in the solution for uncleanness. It wasn't to take a bath, but to offer a sacrifice. The problem is not dirt, but guilt. So the Old Testament Jews, they have this rather complicated system of degrees of uncleanness and various offerings and rituals to become morally clean once more. One particularly striking part of that system is that when an unclean person comes into contact with a clean person, the clean person then becomes unclean. Moral dirtiness is contagious. But consider Jesus. In Levitical categories, he is the cleanest person to ever walk the face of the earth. He is the clean one. Whatever whores cause us to cringe we who are naturally unclean and fallen, would cause Jesus to cringe all the more. We can't fathom the sure purity, holiness, cleanliness of his mind and heart, the simplicity, the innocence, the loveliness. And what did he do when he saw the unclean? Now, think of it. Zacchaeus would have been unclean. Zacchaeus was a despicable person. According to the law, according to the people, he was unclean. But what was Jesus' first impulse when he came across prostitutes or lepers or tax collectors? He moved toward them. Pity flooded his heart, the longing of true compassion. He spent time with them. He touches them. We all can testify to the humaneness of touch, even now especially, right? Where a warm hug can do far more than just a warm greeting, yes? And that's what Jesus does. He runs to the unclean. But there's something deeper in Christ's touch of compassion. He was reversing the Jewish system. When Jesus, the clean one, touched an unclean sinner, Jesus did not become unclean. Rather, the sinner becomes clean. Jesus takes on flesh so that by grace, motivated by grace, being of grace, he can reverse sin and death and the systems that uphold that. This is what we see happening in the story of Zacchaeus. The grace of Christ has transformed his life. He was made whole. His value as an image bearer of God, one of God's own children, a son of Abraham, is restored. His life will never be the same because of Jesus. That's the invitation that God extends to us. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We often disconnect this next verse. For, here's the reason why Jesus would do this. Here's the reason why Jesus extends grace. Here's the reason Jesus is so motivated 
by grace. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. We are God's masterpiece, and he is so motivated by his grace that he runs toward our fallenness because he knows his desire for his creation. This was very real for Zacchaeus. And I hope it's been very real for you. And I would just reiterate Stuart's invitation at the end of the message. If you have not come by grace, through faith, to a relationship with Jesus Christ that has changed your life, I just invite you, would you pray with someone today? Would you ask a question today? Would you contact someone today and just say, would you tell me more about the grace of Jesus Christ? And for those of us that have experienced that, I pray that we're ready to give an account of the grace that we've been shown. None of us deserves it. But grace changes our lives. Zacchaeus was transformed in a moment. He's a different person, and we see the fruit of that almost instantly. And and so Jesus goes to his house, and he has a meal with him and stays with him. And it's not really clear how long, though some timelines have been put on it. But it's not really clear how long Jesus stays with Zacchaeus. But what is clear is that Jesus leaves. So we're told in the text in Luke 19 that Jesus departs from Jericho and continues up to Jerusalem, that he continues the journey that he had started before. And this is a, a path that Jesus had walked several times now in his earthly life. He had come to Jerusalem for Passover several times, and even in his adult ministry, he's passed through Jericho at least three times, but probably four or five And so we see that Jesus leaves. And have you wondered what Zacchaeus was feeling as Jesus got up from the table and walked toward the door? And Zacchaeus walks him to the door to say farewell, and the people are outside his house. Have you ever thought about what Zacchaeus might have been feeling in that moment? having experienced this grace, having been made a child of God, having been restored and redeemed and recognized and valued, having experienced the grace of God in his life, have you thought about what it would feel for Jesus to leave? We don't know what Jesus talked about with Zacchaeus. We we do know that he shares a parable of being faithful in the king's absence. That's what comes right after the story of Zacchaeus, is this parable of a king going away to get his kingdom ready, and he tasks some managers with resources. The point of the parable is to be faithful in the king's absence. So it seems like Jesus might have been having a conversation with Zacchaeus about, hey, I'm going to leave your house, and I want you to continue on. I wonder if Zacchaeus asked How? His life had been changed 
By Jesus, this person who he could touch, who could touch him, who he could share a meal with, who he could converse with, who he could ask questions of. And the whole town had changed their opinion of Zacchaeus because of Jesus' opinion of Zacchaeus. What happens when he leaves? I wonder if Zacchaeus felt what the disciples will feel a week from then. So if you just fast forward the timeline, Jesus talks to Zacchaeus, he goes up to Jerusalem, we get triumphal entry, and then we come to the Last Supper, and Jesus talks about going away with his disciples. And what John tells us in chapter 14 and chapter 16 is that the hearts of the disciples were troubled and filled with sorrow. Because they went, wait a second, Jesus, you've changed our life. Jesus, you've shown us grace like no one has ever shown us grace before. What happens when you leave? I imagine that was what Zacchaeus was feeling. As he stood at the door, as he looked out at the people thinking, will their opinions revert back to what they were when Jesus walks down the street? Will I be despised again when Jesus is out of view? I wonder if, as Jesus got up from the table and moved toward the door of Zacchaeus' house, as maybe he could sense Zacchaeus' heart was a little troubled and sad, I wonder as he looked out the door and toward the road to Jerusalem, knowing he was headed to the temple, if the words of the prophet Zechariah might have come to mind. The words of Zechariah, the prophet of Zerubbabel, as he's getting ready to rebuild the temple, which Jesus is actually going to do, to tear down and rebuild the temple, to reestablish this idea of temple in himself, in his people. A temple torn down, being rebuilt. As Zechariah prophesies in chapter 4 to Zerubbabel, who I think was asking, how am I supposed to do this? How, How am I supposed to get this job done? Zechariah's words from the Lord to Zerubbabel were, it is not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. You who are, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain. And he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. The word of the Lord to Zerubbabel through Zechariah was, hey, you know what? I'm going to give you all that you need to continue on to finish the work By my spirit. It's not going to be by your strength or your might or your power, but by my spirit, says the Lord, that I'm going to level everything in front of you so that you can finish this task. I wonder if Jesus shared those words with Zacchaeus. I wonder if he shared with him what he would be sharing with the disciples in just a week. Hey, I go away, but I will send someone to you. I will send you the Holy Spirit, and that will even be better for you. Or I wonder if Jesus 
just shared with Zacchaeus what he had shared with his disciples just a couple of days before, if timelines are right, from Luke chapter 11. So if you can, take your Bibles and just turn to Luke chapter 11. This is a uh, familiar text to uh, many of us probably. It's Luke's version of the Lord's Prayer, and I, I just want to read verses 1 to 13. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. I love this request. I love that it comes on the heels of Jesus praying, and the disciples maybe are overhearing Jesus' prayer, or they've just seen him engage in this practice, and what a great question to ask Jesus, right? Hey, Jesus, we just saw you praying. We just heard you praying. You pray like nobody else. Like, I've never heard anybody pray like Jesus prays. Would you teach us how to pray? And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. Now you go, wait a second, that's missing a couple of pieces from the Lord's Prayer that I know. Yes, most of us know it out of Matthew. This is Luke's account. It's a little bit different. That's okay. Let's keep reading. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. Okay, first of all, I hope that we can say we're friends I don't know if I want you coming to my house at midnight for three loaves of bread. Okay, Walmart's open 24-7. Head over there and get your three loaves of bread. But Jesus says, okay, if you have a friend, would you go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves? For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. This is just another biblical lesson. Don't, Don't just show up unannounced. It puts people on the spot. All of a sudden, it's midnight. They've got to go over to their neighbor's house and knock on the door and ask for bread because you came unannounced. I don't know what all's going on here, but it's a complicated situation. And he will answer him from within. Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are in bed with me. I cannot get up and give you anything. If you have ever had small children, you have um, some sense of what's going on here. Okay, you just got kids to bed. Okay, that, that is a hallowed, precious moment. Okay, you, you don't want anything to happen that's going to disrupt that. And all of a sudden you hear, boom, 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 boom. <sighs> Shh. What do you want? Hey, I need three loaves of bread. What? My kids are asleep. Yeah, but my friend just showed up out of nowhere and he needs a sandwich, a really big sandwich. Can I please have three loaves of bread? Oh, for goodness sakes. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is a friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. I just want my kids to stay asleep. I will get you bread. Now please, go away. That might be how it works with friends. 
that might be a sense of tension with friends, but that's not how it works with family. Now, maybe you go, hey, my family's a little different. That's kind of how it works with my family. Okay, then, then let me introduce you to God's family. That's not how it's supposed to work with family. And, and so Jesus says, okay, that, that might be how it is with friends, but that's not how it is with your father. And I tell you, ask. Ask. And it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For anyone who asks, for everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? Okay, dads, I don't care how mad you are at your kids. If they're going to come and say, can can we go to Portillo's? They have a new fish sandwich. And I really want a fish sandwich because it only comes out around this time of year. And I don't understand that, but it looks really tasty on the poster. Can we go get a fish sandwich? You're not going to go, no, but let me give you a snake instead. Or if they get up in the morning and go, hey, could we have eggs for breakfast this morning? You're not going to be like, yes. Grilled scorpion coming up, okay? It it just doesn't happen that way. And Jesus says, okay, there might be tension with friends, but with family, it's different, and especially with your father. If then you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? We have a generous, gracious, loving, merciful, forgiving, compassionate, kind God who knows how to give good gifts to his children. And what Jesus says is the best gift he can give you is his Holy Spirit. Why? Oh, there's so, so many reasons. There's so many reasons why the Holy Spirit is a good gift. Here's just a few of them. The Holy Spirit regenerates us. The Holy Spirit convicts us. The Holy Spirit empowers us with gifts. The Holy Spirit testifies to our hearts that we are God's children. The Holy Spirit leads us. The Holy Spirit makes us fruitful. The Holy Spirit grants and nourishes us resurrection, life, The Holy Spirit enables us to kill sin, intercedes for us when we don't know what to pray, guides us into truth, transforms us into the image of God. The Holy Spirit is this incredible, incredible gift from the Father. And Jesus says, all you got to do is ask. All you got to do is come to this gracious, loving, merciful, forgiving Father, this multidimensional, this multifaceted Father who is characterized by grace and ask, and He will give you this good, good gift. Now, in all that the Spirit does, here's what I hope we can see. In all that the Spirit does, He makes the grace of Christ real and effectual in our lives. 
We desperately need God's grace. We all have sinned. We all have fallen short. We all are stuck in this place of need, of brokenness. And the character of Christ, the motivation of Christ, the very essence of Christ compels him to run towards us and extend us grace. Grace that changes our lives like it did Zacchaeus. And that's made real to us and effectual in our lives by the Holy Spirit. I don't know exactly what Jesus said to Zacchaeus, but we do know what he says to the disciples. When they go, please, don't go away. You've changed our lives. He says, you know what? That's going to continue to happen. That's going to continue to be real in you. That's going to continue to have an impact on your life because I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to you. It is the Holy Spirit in us that makes the grace of Christ real to us and effectual in our life, effective, impactful. The Holy Spirit gives us an experiential understanding of the grace of God. If you just look up that text in 1 Corinthians 2.12, you're going to see the word understanding. Paul says, I want you to understand the good things that God has given us. I want you to understand the grace of God. And the way you do that is by the Spirit. We haven't been given a spirit of the world, but we've been given the Spirit of God. The Spirit makes God's grace to us real and effectual in our lives. That word understanding in that text isn't just an intellectual understanding. It's an experiential understanding. It's the the breadth and depth of the word understanding. In every way possible, we will understand that. The Holy Spirit causes our apprehension of Christ's grace for us, towards us, to be closer to what it actually is. That, That just means that sometimes we know that God is gracious. We know that Christ has extended grace to us. We can mentally assent to that. We can say, yes, I believe that for by grace we've been saved. But the Holy Spirit makes our apprehension of that, our comprehension, our understanding of that, how that actually plays into our lives, real closer to what it actually is. A couple of just very practical illustrations. The Holy Spirit turns the recipe into an actual taste sensation. Okay, it does you no good to make a delicious meal. Okay, maybe there's a sense of accomplishment. Wow, look at what I made. Doesn't it look beautiful? Isn't that great? I followed a recipe. But when you taste it, you actually begin to experience the beauty, the value, the significance of the recipe. The Holy Spirit is the taste of God's grace. The Holy Spirit turns a postcard into our experience. Have you ever gotten a postcard from, you know, a friend who went to Disney World? And they send you a postcard and, you know, it says, wish you were here. Yeah, me too. You know, most of the time, I don't know about you, and maybe this is bad to say, I, I don't pin those on the, on the fridge because that's just painful, right? I wish I was there. Yes, I do. 
The Holy Spirit is not a postcard. The Holy Spirit wasn't sent by Jesus to say, hey, wish you were here in heaven with me. No, the Holy Spirit is the real deal. Jesus sends the Holy Spirit that we might experience all that is real and true of us in Christ. And all we have to do is ask. Now, this can be a little confusing because um, it sounds like we need to go, okay, God, I need more of the Holy Spirit. Okay, the testimony of Scripture is that when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we are given, we are filled, we are sealed, we are um, completely indwelled by the Holy Spirit. We get all of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is not a thing, it's not a force, it's not pieces and parts. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is God. God in us. And we get all of that. So what are we asking for? A greater apprehension of what is true and real of us in Christ by the Holy Spirit. What that really means is we need to make sure there's some things that aren't hindering the Holy Spirit in our lives. And so we come and we ask. Now asking right from the get-go takes a certain degree of humility. Believing that our sufficiency is not enough. Okay, I don't really like asking for help. Okay, I I, want to be able to do things on my own, but the reality is I can't. I'm not sufficient to do everything I need to do by myself. But it takes a certain degree of humility to say, hey, could you help me? And so I think part of prayer is just that submitting to God, that humble approach to God that acknowledges, I can't do this on my own, God. Oh, what a great prayer that he loves to answer. Because grace is not just something that he gives. It's not simply his kindness towards us. Grace is who he is. What that means is that when we ask for grace and he can give it liberally and we receive it, he's filled with joy. That's what that text in Hebrews 12 said that we read at the beginning of the service. For the joy that was set before him, the joy of extending grace, lavishing grace upon us. That's what brings Jesus joy. Now that's so counterintuitive. We think Jesus just wants me to get it all together. No, he wants you to rely on his grace. That's what brings him joy. And so when we're willing to come and ask, God, I need an experience of your grace. I need your spirit who is in me to enliven that in me, to bring that experience into a more close apprehension of what is really true, to make that real and effectual in my life. God, I need you to do that. He is filled with joy. And in our relationship with Jesus Christ, our joy is connected to his joy. And so there is this symbiotic, this synergistic relationship that when we call on God's grace, when we humble ourselves to ask for grace, Christ is filled with joy and so are we. It's so counterintuitive, but it works. Look at the story of Zacchaeus. 
And so we come and we ask, and asking takes a degree of humility, believing that we're not sufficient in and of ourselves. But as we ask, then I want you to think about these three things. And these are our takeaways today. Ask because God is gracious. He's full of grace. He is grace. And he's so ready to pour it out on us. So then would you, would you consider, am I ready to receive or am I resisting? the Spirit. In uh, Acts 7.51, Stephen is, uh, is speaking to the Pharisees. Stephen is this follower of Christ. He's uh, come into relationship with the apostles. He's been made a servant that's been caring for the church, and uh, he just loves Jesus. And, and he says to the Pharisees, you do always resist the Holy Spirit. Why? Because they were self-righteous because they were self-willed and self-sufficient. And so I think we have to just start by asking, are, are we willing to receive or are we resisting the Spirit? Because the way that God's grace to us in our lives is made real and effectual is by the Holy Spirit. And so are you ready to receive the Holy Spirit? the work that the Spirit is going to do. This next one is very closely related. Are are you ready to respond to and not quench the Holy Spirit? So it's one thing to receive the Holy Spirit, to say, yes, I, I want God's grace in my life, but when the Spirit comes to go, whoa, but not that way. Okay, that's quenching the Holy Spirit. In 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul says, don't quench the Holy Spirit. It just means that when we are prompted by the Spirit, when the Word is illuminated to us by the Spirit, when we're experiencing that grace and joy by the Spirit, we don't then go, "Uh, that's enough of that, I'll take over again. Or I'm not going to do that, what you're calling me to, because that's way too radical. Or or, I'm I'm not going to move in to fallenness and sin and suffering like Jesus does. Are you ready to receive and not resist? Are you ready to respond to and not quench? Are you ready to rejoice and not grieve? Do you rejoice in the Holy Spirit? In all that the Spirit does in your life, do you rejoice in that? In the text in Ephesians 4, Paul says, Grieve not the Holy Spirit. In the verses right after that, he talks about how we sometimes speak bad words against one another, how we gossip, how we slander, how our words kind of reveal whether or not we're rejoicing in the Spirit or grieving the Spirit. One of the works that is a true grace of God that the Spirit does in us is the Spirit brings us together as the family as the body, as the building, as the bride of Christ. And so one of the most grievous things about, to the Holy Spirit is when we tear each other down. So are we rejoicing, not just in what the Holy Spirit has done in us, but what the Holy Spirit is doing in us, collectively? Do we rejoice in what the Holy Spirit is doing in one another? And this brings us back to affirmation. These values are are really connected. And so to be able to affirm one another, we have to just celebrate in grace that God's at work in each one of us.
that we haven't arrived yet, that God's still at work, and by His Spirit, His grace is being made real and effectual in our lives. Do we rejoice in that? Honestly, that's hard sometimes. Even for a pastor to go, man, I, I just don't see the growth that I want to see in, in our church. I, I, not in numbers, but in spiritual vitality. I just don't want, I, I want to see some more. I want to see this, and I can, I can become discouraged. And, or maybe we've hurt one another in word or deed. Especially in 2020, maybe we just haven't reached out enough and we're feeling neglected or, or left out or just uncared for. Can we show each other grace? Can we rejoice in the grace that God is working in us by His Spirit, in each one of us, in us collectively? Because He's not done. This week, will you, will you just ask, God, would you make me more aware of your grace in my life by your Holy Spirit? Would you seek that out? Would you knock on his door? Would you really work at finding that? Just ask, God, would you just just make me more aware of your grace in my life by your Holy Spirit? And then would you just consider, am I ready to receive the Holy Spirit? Do I really want the Holy Spirit to do the kind of work that the Spirit did in Zacchaeus' life? Is that what I want? Or do I resist that? Consider, am I ready to respond? Whatever the Spirit asks, here we go. Am I ready to respond? Or do I kind of quench? And will I rejoice in what God is doing in each one of us instead of grieving the Holy Spirit? Let's pray together. Father, again, I just thank you for your grace. Lord, I thank you for all of the portraits of your grace that we get to see in the Gospels. There's so many stories of how Jesus interacts with people that vividly portray your grace. Father, I just ask that that would be made more real in our lives by your Spirit. Father, thank you for sending your Spirit. Thank you for all the Spirit does in our lives. But Father, in all of that, I pray that the Spirit would cause your grace to be more evident to us and through us, more real and effectual in our lives, Father. I pray that we would receive that, that we would respond to that, that we would rejoice in that. Thank you in Christ's name. Amen.